I feel like mindfulness practices in particular are really useful in terms of helping people become more enlightened about themselves and about others. Welcome to the Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. I'm David Trelevin, and this is a podcast that explores the intersection of mindfulness, meditation, and traumatic stress. In this episode, I'm interviewing Dr. Sydney Spears. Sydney is a mindfulness teacher, licensed social worker, and also a professor who teaches on cultural diversity, clinical social work, and trauma-sensitive care. Sydney teaches trauma-sensitive mindfulness and mindful self-compassion through an organization called the Midwest Alliance in Mindfulness in the U.S., which is focusing on providing mindfulness-based practices for at-risk populations. In our conversation, we talk about the relationship between trauma and racial oppression, mindfulness and self-compassion, and then how this all fits together inside of her teaching. Really appreciated getting to speak with Sydney, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as well. So without further ado, here's Sydney Spears. So I'm here with Sydney Spears. Sydney, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you, David, for the invitation. I really, really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to this um, ever since we booked it. And I'm wondering for people that um, you know haven't heard about your work or don't know you, could you just talk a little bit about um, your story? How did you become interested in mindfulness, mindful self-compassion work? talking about trauma and systemic trauma. I just am so curious about learning more about you. So what do you want us to know? Well, thank you for that question. I appreciate it. I actually uh, started out, I believe, just years ago when I was a teenager and just noticed some of the problems in terms of civil rights and uh, disparities at that time. And, And I am a cisgender woman of color, um, identify myself as multiracial as well as Mm African-American. And it just, those images on TV and then my actual lived experience, listening to my parents talk about their lived experiences around race Mm -hmm. um, as well as gender identity, they were powerful to me. And I always wondered about the previous generations and history and like, oh my goodness, how did those people get through it? And that that was terrible. Mm. And of course, at the time, I was not thinking of that per se as trauma. Yeah. Because the other part, the other intersection here is in my personal experience that I did experienced some developmental trauma Mm -hmm. and not understanding, of course, as a kid, uh, why, what was going on. I really, you know, dealt a lot with my own anxieties around it, senses of loss. There's a lot of grief and loss and not really understanding, of course, as a kid, an adolescent, what what was really going on and how I felt about myself with all these layers of trauma of not just being a racialized person and a, identifying as a cisgender woman mm. and as well as experiencing complex developmental trauma in my household. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. to make a long story short, my uh, curiosity about it just led me to do more studies because I was also trying to help myself, obviously. Yeah. But I also could see the suffering that was involved before they, you know, started talking about trauma and really recognizing the impact of trauma toward human beings and how constricting just that constriction, oh my goodness, is is so um, overwhelming and so deep in many ways. Yeah. And so, you know, I just went through my own counseling, my own, um, tried to do a a lot of self-help too. And then I I had dealt with some family losses. There were three big family losses of relatives and um, close relatives in my experience. And that led me to thinking more about mindfulness. I actually saw a special on, I think it was PBS on the Buddha. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was fascinated because Mm -hmm. at that time I was really pretty depressed and very anxious and 
thinking, oh my God, you know, the world is, my world was just changing and it was not the same with those losses. And it did feel traumatic because it was just so many, one right after the other. And it was, it was horrible. So by seeing that special, it led me to kind of check out mindfulness because I thought, well, you know, there's something about this and about suffering and, um, being present and all of that, that was intriguing to me. So actually I started out with um, taking a yoga class and Mm -hmm. uh, to tell you the truth, that yoga class was tough. (laughs) (laughs) It was pretty tough, Yeah, but there was something about it that I couldn't pinpoint specifically that drew me back, even though I went home with, you know, Oh my goodness, all kind of aches. Tightness, <laughs> <laughs> everything else, you sure. know. But I kept coming back and I couldn't understand why. It's like there's something about this and I couldn't, I just didn't know at that time. But I finally mm. figured it out and uh, kept practicing yoga on my own and then ended up becoming a yoga teacher as well. And oh, wow. Somebody had told me. Oh, Sydney, you will be a yoga teacher one day. When I first came in, I said, oh, nope, not me. (laughs) Mm, mm. I I like the practice, but I can't see myself doing it. But it just showed uh, myself, actually, how intrigued and how curious and how helpful it was in many ways. And then that led me to um, taking a course, a local course in uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction, and then I just kept moving. Uh, that was very useful. Kept the intrigue going and that pr- the present moment experience and holding my emotions rather than dissociating from them. And, mm-hmm. and that's a lot of what I learned. And I learned more about connecting to my body rather than being dissociated from it. So that mm-hmm. led me to um, taking the personal training, not personal, excuse me, the professional training with John Kabat-Zinn before he stopped teaching it. Mm-hmm. So I did that. And then that led me to be more curious about mindful self-compassion because I thought, oh my goodness, that's exactly what I need, what my family needs. Mm-hmm. I felt like the world needs more of this. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Let me start here at home base. Mm-hmm. And that's what attracted me to mindful self-compassion or MSC, as we call it, was that uh, me doing my own work, my own practice, um, connecting more to my own suffering and pain, um, being with it rather than, um, you know, ignoring it or identifying with it. Mm. um, That really helped me a lot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thanks, Sydney. It's means powerful to hear. There's a lot of different inroads, places that I'm excited to to talk to you more about based on your story and hearing about kind of the the road to here. And can you talk a little bit about your practice these days? You know, I, I when doing this podcast on mindfulness and trauma, I I often feel so aware of just the world, um, the different pressures, the different social conditions. And you know, here we are, we're having this conversation as a whole lot is opening up around coronavirus, um, pressures around the election here in the U.S., um, continued social justice organizing happening. And so to hear, after hearing about you know, your family history, your life, your practice, can you just talk about what, um, where, how is your practice going these days? Where is it and where is it helping? What is it um, you know, making possible for you? It is helping a great deal. I um, actually, every morning, I will uh, sit. I always have a sit. Um, it, it runs the gamut in terms of how long, but typically mm. at least 15 minutes because it helps me center myself and start my day. And the other practice that I absolutely love is obviously yoga. I continue my yoga practice. But just also, just intermittently, more informally throughout the day, I am better able, I I just noticed the difference, oh my goodness, over time, but I am better able to truly connect and be with my body, bringing in that, that interoception for myself. And it has made such a difference. Um, 
in my experience to to really yeah. feel my body, notice the sensations, and especially when stressors arise. Yeah. That has been really helpful for me in terms of navigating, you know, my history of trauma, uh, present day stressors, just what you were talking about with the, oh my goodness, all that's going on in the world that's just generating a plethora for many people and for myself uh, to a certain degree, anxiety, constant anxiety and constant fear. So um, that because of that, and because of listening to the media sometimes, because I've actually kind of curbed back on listening to the media, yeah, yeah. because it does generate more of that anxiety. And I, um, I have just decided that one of the best or most compassionate things for me to do is to move away from that and then just hold all of what's going on with compassion. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, still the hope, there's a level of hope that's built into my experience of hope that, yes, we're in this place right now, and it's, it's, it's chaotic. It's, 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 we got a lot of work to do, yeah. a lot of work that's a residual effect from, from a lot of work that we didn't do historically that's starting to, you know, all converge. Yeah together with a lot of social issues and disparities, as well as all the global issues and problems. But my hope is that this is part of that being with discomfort mm-hmm. and suffering mm-hmm. um, that in, in a macro way, in a more global or collective way, yeah. that, that if we can just be with this discomfort um, which I learned to do because there was a time I, I didn't have those skills. But if we can be with it, then that might give us the opportunity, instead of dissociating from it on a macro level, to finally make those wise choices and the discernment around where we really need to do, where we need to go. Yeah. And that, you know, it's that that piece that's also in mindful self-compassion about you know, what is the hidden message sometimes in suffering it on a mm-hmm. micro level, mm-hmm. a macro level, a meso level, whatever level it's on. But what is the hidden value in it? Mm-hmm. Because there's a tendency to just, I think for many of us, to just look at the surface of just just the pain. And yes, it's there. And, and we, we, we want to be, you know, true of what we're experiencing. But there's there's some potential um, positive developmental maybe byproducts of that if we um, look a little deeper. Absolutely, I'd love to dig in with you around what you just said about the what I heard is kind of expanding the capacity to be with discomfort, and that you know I've from my sense of your work, you're someone who doesn't turn away from hard conversations around race, identity, difference. And when I was writing this book around trauma-sensitive mindfulness, one of the conversations I was in about, well, what would be the kind of the best case scenario around a trauma-informed or trauma-sensitive practice of mindfulness? And one of the things that came up was the capacity for a person or a group of people to be able to expand their capacity to be with really pain, suffering, the th- what you just named about in a moment that a group might tend to turn away from something difficult to actually turn in and say, what's not being addressed here? Or how can I stay in this conversation? And I feel like that's been a, it sounds like that's a domain that you've been working in. So can you say anything about, you know, where are you seeing this supporting individuals or groups? I'm happy to say, you know, in certain work around with white folks here in the U.S. around like where are the places to expand capacity to be with history and suffering as opposed to dissociating? I'm just curious how you're, you know, you're working it these days. Thank you for that question, David. In many capacities, I have found it to be so useful for myself. So I felt like this may be a way of helping people who are not aware of the depth of suffering for certain populations 
certain social cultural identities that people mm. carry and certain mm. groups um, and the residual effect of history for some of those groups as well. And um, that, that even the research states right now that that history for those particular events like American slavery, for example, or mm-hmm. um, the colonization of indigenous populations um, and the Holocaust, of course, but that actually that still has an effect and it is transgenerational, those stories that are handed down, those narratives and then how it shapes one's identity, um, and then therefore how people end up holding that. Mm-hmm. And that's a really important point for people who may have certain social privileges and advantages in whatever culture they may be in. Mm-hmm. Because most of us have some kind of privilege. You know, it's not just just certain people like, oh, it's just those people over there. I have privilege. I have ability privilege. I don't have to worry about, you know, walking into a room. Um, I have to try to navigate my way through it. Like, how am I going to get there? Is the door going to be heavy? Uh, if someone's in a wheelchair or someone has some kind of, of um, ability challenge that's more medicalized or chronic pain and those kinds of things. I don't even have to think about that. So the invitation is for people to really start at home and to be able to, to understand and identify what are those social cultural identities that one has, uh, what are they, and which ones in whatever culture you live in, which ones tend to be socially constructed where it generates benefits, social benefits. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those that generate more disparities and injustices and um, more bias, more negative bias, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's starting home again uh, with self. And then one is better able to try to understand the realities of other people because it's really, it's really a way of, it's an exploration of being expansive, not contracted. Right. Be expansive about the world and about the reality of life. And it's not just about me or it's not just about, you know, oneself because it's easy to get caught up in that, that, because it's my reality doesn't mean it's somebody else's reality, but to understand that, oh, it's a lot more complex and it's a lot more expansive than what I ever imagined. And I feel like mindfulness practices in particular are really useful in terms of helping people become more enlightened about themselves and about others. Absolutely. I I so share I think that's so well said. And I feel like you're, from my experience around even just interest in social justice work um, earlier in my life really came from a, a place of, oh, what am I not seeing? Or, uh, you know, having certain people who are more targeted by oppression investing or taking the risk of really pulling me aside and saying, I'm going to let you know some of the the pain and injustice that you might not be shaped to see here. And that was, and mindfulness, as you're saying, that was, that to me is, is such a supportive practice for being in a very humbling, especially, you know, in my circumstance, being in a position of more privilege of just trying to constantly be aware of whose pain I'm not seeing, where there's injustice happening that I'm oblivious to. And I couldn't agree more about mindfulness being such a powerful practice inside of that. And I'm also wondering, how is it going for you as someone who is taking on, it sounds like part of your work or one of the commitments you're making is to really be talking about trauma in a systemic way, to not to, to not just talk about trauma as an individual tragedy, but I mean, it is, but also embedded within these larger social contexts. And I I'm just curious, how, how is that received when you are in 
a teaching role? How how do you do you find people are receptive? Do they get their backs up? Um, it's I feel like it's always different any room that I'm in. So I'm curious what you're experiencing these days or how it's going. Well, my experience of teaching systemic trauma, uh, cultural trauma, and the history around that too, and uh, you know the the various as I said layers that many trauma survivors are carrying, but uh, sometimes those bigger layers just go unrecognized, as we've already mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, because I'm teaching at a university, University of Kansas in the School of Social Welfare, I'm interfacing with budding social workers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I got it. Therefore, those particular students it's not like they. This is easy street for them at all. Sure, sure. But um, they they are interested in social justice, so I think that helps. Nevertheless, it is hard for many of them to interface. Um, I'm just going to take one particular identity right now because sure. I have a course. Um, it's called Social Work Practice with African American Families. So we're talking a lot about race. So that's the reason why. I'm I'm pinpointing that one sure. and all the intersections of uh, people who are of color. But we just had a conversation, for example, in class, and those students who identify as white, and they're the, the majority of the students in the class, they were able to say, and this is the, let's see, I think it's the, it was the sixth class. They were able to say, you know what, I am feeling very, very down in some ways because Mm -hmm. I feel this sense of deep guilt. I feel this sense of there's some shame as well. And I feel like, oh my God, you know, what can I do? I mean, it's almost like you get hit, hit, hit with all of this, uh, all these experiences and it's an infusion too, because it's a course. It's not like oh, they take a you know a three hour class right, and then go home. Yeah, right. Right. But I was just really, it was just I was just so impressed, I guess, by the fact that by the sixth class, that these students were able to share their internal experiences, their true internal experiences, not just with themselves and own it, but with everybody else in the class. And we have students of color in there too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then the students of color, they happen to say, um, you know what? There's one student in in the the class who talked about some challenges and some basically some grief and loss around the fact that her family integrated to this country and that what she was taught in order to assimilate and acculturate and adapt to American culture, uh, predominantly white male ways of being, doing, processes, policies, etc., talking, um, that she basically had to give up her culture. Her parents were telling you, 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 you just, you're just going to have to give up your culture mm-hmm. in, in order for you to assimilate. And they were only saying that because they wanted her to do well. And obviously, there needs to be some adaptation when you move to a different culture anyway. But do you have to give up a part of yourself that is so deeply ingrained within the history and within your family uh, and your sense of self? And this person just talked about the, the internal feeling of sadness and grief and loss around that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an example I could go on. but. But it requires, it does require, in order for one to do that, just what you are supporting, David, so well, it, it requires a trauma-sensitive, safe, and brave container. That yeah. has to be, that has to be developed, that has to be supported, that there's even reminders. I know that I do constantly in that particular context. Um of what students can do when things come up. I really don't, in academia, the word is trigger warning. Personally, I, I, I like to use activation rather than trigger, but it takes that, but it also takes 
helping them come to a sense of community, regardless of what the body oppression might have been that they experienced and the, the social or the cultural oppression. That at the end of the day, and this is where MSC or mindful self-compassion comes in too, because it's so supportive of, but you know, at the end of the day, and this is what I hope we're moving to as a, as a people globally, we, there's common humanity. There, there are some basic needs that we all have. And, and really, we're, we're, definite, we're more alike than different. But we've had these social construction of narratives that have come in and made these differences that have caused a lot of divisiveness and even more trauma and re-traumatization for certain people that yeah. were in that layer. But to balance that, to balance that, to be able to balance when it comes to the awareness of, of what we're really experiencing here as human beings in this context and what we're sharing, we're sharing some hard stuff where people are, you know, articulating clearly what they are thinking and feeling where they're even feeling it in their bodies. Right, right. That that there needs to be a balance because if it's to the polar opposite where it's just about, you know, the the all the suffering and there's never the other end of the continuum there of but the connection or it's just all about difference, but there's not the connection. There's not what do, what joy do we get from diversity? If we had diverse people, it would be so boring. <laughs> yeah. You know, so yeah. I'm just saying that that there needs to be a construction within that safe container, if it's a group, needs to be the sense of collectivity that needs to be built as well. And that, I feel like, came through with the safe container. And that's why some of these students were able to actually say out loud what mm-hmm. they had been holding all the time. And some just discovered, some mm-hmm. had no clue. It's like, oh my God, I had no idea. I'm so glad you're touching on this. And I was hoping we'd get to talk about it because you're you're really naming one of the biggest questions and struggles and kind of places of learning that I know at least personally I'm in and just to get to hear some of your experiences here is awesome that as you know, as someone who has tried and you know, tried really hard in many different environments to be, to lean very heavily into the truth around identity, the ways that um, groups of people are targeted differently in the way that relates to trauma and really trying to have a strong analysis to create safety in the rooms that I'm in, especially as a white man, to be able to at least communicate to a group of people that that's something that I've thought about and I'm actively thinking about. And then I've just seen it, uh, I feel like at times, and this is a conversation happening, I, it seems like in a number of spaces now, but at times that the f- focus on identity that I hear you talking about can almost go too far to a point of, of creating splintering. And and it's just so painful to me to see it happen where, and it, and it keeps going down the line where we're talking about whether it's race, gender, class, p- places that where we tend to, f- the complexity kind of drops out and we, and we forget about the shared humanity and there's this splintering that happens. And then how to, is there a, a kind of a, a third way where there can be a really depthful piece of work and understanding over a whole lifetime of the work that you're naming around identity and understanding it. And it sounds like, you know, here you are educating people around it and how to bring in that piece around the, the commonality or the shared humanity I hear you talking about that doesn't just feel like an override. And I, I mean, personally, I feel like it's not a move that I can make in my location as with the privilege that I have to say, <laughs> there's just no, I guess I can sort of reference sh- a shared, what you just said around shared humanity. And yet it feels like that's in the current environment that I'm often in, that will be, um, how be very triggering for people. And so I'm interested in this tension and how different communities are working with it to not override and, and still really 
acknowledge um, difference. And so I'm, I'm so curious if you're willing to say more, but like, where's your, how's it going in MSC or how do you, how do you work with this? It sounds like you're working with it in your classrooms, which is awesome. Yes. In uh, MSC, I taught a particular five-day intensive with Chris Germer here recently, and that was in uh, in your area there. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. That's right. And I should say I should say mindful self compassion for uh, for anyone that doesn't know the the acronym. Yeah, at uh, Esalen, and that was a that was a great experience for sure. But part of the impetus that Chris Germer and Kristen Neff were really interested in doing. They really wanted to enhance that balance that mm-hmm, we're mm-hmm. about. And and also enhance the sense of inclusion and belonging for all mm. mindful self-compassion students. Because there's the entree, and, and that is so important, just walking across the threshold, uh, especially for people with certain identities and depending on where they're at, and obviously with many uh, other people who may have identities that may not be as privileged, but you're still bringing in your full self. And yeah. uh, there's always that scanning the environment, you know, the and as you know, the nervous system still scanning, whether it's consciously or not, but neuroception. And I actually talked about my experience of going into my very first MSC class. And the first thing I noticed was, oh my goodness, this was like, it was in California as well. And it was, I think there were almost a hundred people in the space. Uh-huh. And that was a bit I won't say overwhelming, but it was like, oh my goodness, I had no idea it mm. was going to be that many, um, you know, for this particular presentation mm-hmm. and for this program. And then I I did scan and then I noticed, oh, I don't see anybody who looks like me. Oh, yeah, it's so common. Most of white <laughs> folks are, yeah, so yeah. common. And I thought out of a hundred people uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> as well. So all of that is to say that um, in in MSC and especially the one the the, uh, the intensive that we did, Chris and I did together. We co-taught that uh, recently. There was really intentional effort to bring more balance for those individuals that may come into space. Like I, I talked about my experience the first time mm-hmm. and some people are totally fine with it and they don't have any of that. But, um, for those people, what we did, we actually brought up that experience or the possibility that one could experience that in terms of, we had an exercise and it's called the iceberg exercise. We use that a lot in academia as well. And it's one to use an iceberg as a metaphor for oneself. Mm-hmm. And that with an iceberg, you know, the tip of the iceberg is the smallest part and it's above the water. The largest part, most of that iceberg is below. But it's a way of thinking about our intersections of identity because we had a little conversation about what those are. And then the uh, students were invited to place themselves in terms of which identities might be at the tip of the iceberg. So above the waterline that are more visible identities, like if a stranger was walking down the street, most likely, what would they see you Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. identity wise as? And then which ones were below the waterline where people won't know that about you. And not just identities, but also parts of yourself in terms of the roles that you have in your life, your interest, what you like, um, what you don't don't want to do. I mean, mm. your your history, your just all of that. And the point is, there's so much of ourselves that people don't know about us. But because of the cultural, social judgment biases that uh, all of us are kind of hardwired with too that get supported by the social world and the various systems in the social world to maintain those thoughts and not Mm -hmm. challenge them. 
then it's it's really easy for people to see us in a very narrow way. Um, as if, for instance, as a woman of color, like I'm, I'm a walking woman of color. I mean, people could easily just see me that way. And that's all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And again, supporting those biases around who I am and not really even interested or knowing that there's so much more to me than just my, this, this, the skin color, for example, or the uh, gender expression of probably perceived being a woman. I'll put it that way. Sure. So we did that and that just opened up a lot of conversation and that was the intention. Great. Can we bring what has been dissociated? Can we bring culture and people's culture identities and people's social identities, can we bring that into the space and honor that as well? That we all have those parts. It's not just those people, but can we bring that into the space and can we have a conversation about it and help people reflect upon it more so? And can you talk about how did how did you work that with mindful self-compassion? What I love that practice and it makes me realize the ways that if with the focus I've had in on identity the last 10 years, there's a way I feel like I've lost that sometimes where I'll walk into a room, I'm doing my scanning around power and thinking, okay, well, this person in this box here, and I almost lost that muscle of holding room for complexity and what is unseen. And I, so I love that you did that. And I'm wondering, how did you, given what that opened up, how did you work that with mindful self-compassion or what did that make possible um, with, with that group? Well, Chris Germer actually, it's this lovely piece that he wrote. It's very short, but one, it's about forgiveness. It's about mm. if I have something to you that you perceive as, um, uh, you know, harmful or a microaggression or whatever, just know that I did not know enough about you to respond in a way that may have been more compassionate mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and that basically I am here to to try to learn that and vice versa you know if I do something to someone or say something to someone or look at somebody a certain way or whatever and it's perceived by the other person as oh you know that has a certain meaning that could be problematic the same thing so we shared that and then after we did that we went ahead and went through because in 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 mindful self-compassion, in that first session, there's quite a bit that goes on to maintain a safe space, to build and maintain a safe space, right. safe and safe space. Right. So, you know, we talk about people um, noticing their nervous systems in terms of opening and closing. Notice when you start to open, notice when you start to close, and what what might arise if you are opening, you know, to ask the group that? What might arise and what might arise when, when you're starting to close mm-hmm. and um, to get the, the feedback from the group? And then we also go through a lot of different um, aspects in terms of, you know, group agreements, uh, finding your own place, your own nest in the space of comfort because everything is really wrapped around compassion and self-compassion. Right, right. And and so it, it kind of just sets the tone and also normalizing difficult emotions um, to help people know, to put that out in the space. And then just instead of just saying, well, you know, some difficult emotions may arise, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. As, you, as you, if you choose to experience this particular meditation, because it is a choice, because you want to really dip into whether you're opening, closing, and then the, as, as Kristen Neff says, the quintessential question for mindful self-compassion is, what is it that I need in this moment? Right, right, right. And so um, my point is that there's, there's quite a bit that's done around, you know, choice making, uh, balancing, and, and, and just being more aware, bringing in the mindfulness to be more aware of when one is adjusting, opening and closing, when one does need to um, move from the space, for example. Because uh, we talk about, you know, 
possibilities of of um, various options to take care of oneself. And so that's inclusive, though, of like the iceberg exercise. It's not separate from that. It was just a way, David, of honoring and bringing into the space uh, intentionally what has not typically been addressed. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it all kind of just moves together. There's also, similar to the window of tolerance in some ways, there's three concentric circles that we draw on a whiteboard and in the middle of the circle, the closest one in uh, has the word safety on it. And then the, the next circle that's bigger outside the safety circle has challenge. And then the bigger circle on the outer side that has overwhelm on it. And so we have conversations around, you know, the opening, the closing, et cetera. Um, if someone, again, says something that might be perceived as a microaggression or whatever it might be, or one is feeling a sense of uh, shame about a bias in conversations, then that particular model um, has been really helpful to the students. And then we often refer back to that, like before there's a meditation that Perhaps, um, again, it may bring up a difficult situation, but it's kind of titrated because, of course, it's kind of like scaling the difficult situation. It's always an invitation, you know, mild to immediate mm-hmm. medium dresser, mm-hmm. you know, not on the upper end here. Mm-hmm. But you're also welcome at any time. You are welcome to, you know, not participate. You're welcome to take a break. You're welcome to uh, move your attention uh, on the outside here, you know, somewhere else that may be more soothing for you because, again, the quintessential question is, what is it that you need in this moment when you notice that? And what can you do to meet that need? I love, this is to me, that those three circles puts us right on the whatever, what's the amount, $25,000 question or whatever. I know there was one game show about that, but you know, I think that's a brilliant use of this idea of that there's, you know, safe, a stretch, and then there's overwhelm. And a lot of my work has ended up focusing on noticing where there's an overwhelm and being in that stretch and all the different signs and signals that we can notice that when we're in growth and the ways that's going to be so different in different contexts, like for example, self-compassion. And just because we've been talking about it, I'd love your opinion on this around systemic trauma and really, you know, talking about identity and difficulty. That in my experience, when things get challenging or difficult, people talking about, gosh, you name it, race, gender, I mean, just having conversations around Me Too, Black Lives Matter, just it brings, you know, those are conversations that I have to really work my mindfulness practice to be present for. And one of the questions that comes up often is around um, accountability and what would be centered accountability for each different person and community if they're wanting to address systemic harm and trauma and like that the students in your class that you said, well, what can I do? What's, What's my move here at this current juncture in history? And I'm wondering if you could talk about how you work with mindful self-compassion and accountability. And I'm asking this because I could imagine there's a bit of a double-edged sword or what I could imagine there being around mindful self-compassion. That on one hand, if I get a little uncomfortable around uh, a conversation that's challenging for me, I might then go to self-compassion as a way to soothe, which that might be skillful. And then there's other times where actually the the move would be to be with more discomfort and to get back to those three circles that the best place maybe for me to be is to be in that stretch zone and comfort zone, or sorry, the learning zone. And it's just such a dynamic conversation. And how, how would you not have people just slip back into over soothing themselves with self-compassion or on the other hand i've seen it happen that people go almost too far and they end up immobilized in shame and guilt Mm. and so do you i'm just curious how you work with that because it's just so dynamic yeah yeah that is true 
And it is it is difficult in, in many ways, very challenging for some people to wrap their brains around it. But, you know, being compassionate with oneself as well as being compassionate with other people who are suffering mm-hmm. is not, to me, um, it does not stop or uh, put the brakes on action. Right on. Oh, right on. And 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 in particular, um, I asked my students that the other day about that question because there was a student who said, "Well, what do we do?" And I said, "Well, what do you, what do you all think? What, what's coming to mind? Mm-hmm. Anybody else, you know, have any thoughts about that?" So the first thing was challenge. Uh, one person said to challenge when there is um, a mindful experience of a bias, um, any of the isms, mm-hmm. because I know we talk sometimes a lot about certain isms, uh, but there's others too that sometimes I feel like kind of get on the back burner, like ageism, for example, sure. even those people who are ability challenged, uh, people who are not neurotypical, that they're more neurodivergent, for example, mm-hmm. I think they, they, their voices need to be more amplified, for example. But, um, yeah, challenge. When, when one hears, um, let's say it could be a, a, a joke about those individuals or that group, that happens a lot, especially in, in this in American culture, um, where, yeah, it's, it's kind of ridicule. It's like, oh, it's not a big deal. That was just a joke. But, you know, obviously that's very harmful and that's supporting a lot of of implicit biases too. But uh, the student was saying, yeah, to be able to have the ability and the courage and the conviction and living your social justice and your advocacy and your activism by standing up when it's not comfortable and you can be compassionate with yourself with that discomfort, but to actually act on it. and to do it in a way that's coming from an intention of being, it could be anti-racist, anti-sexist, um, mm-hmm. any of those isms, mm-hmm. anti-homophobic. Um, yes, to be able to bring your voice to the table, because there's so many of these individuals that do not have the privilege to sit at the table or have a place at the table. Therefore, they don't have their voices heard and they don't have a choice about what's going to happen in a lot of systems. Other people who are in power decide what these people need, Um, but they never really ask, like Mm -hmm. in certain organizations, never really ask, like people who are homeless. We've got this program for people who are homeless. Did you ever ask any homeless people what they thought about it or their opinions about it? Hmm. No. So if you were in that organization and there was, let's say, a a program, social service program, or just a strategic plan in a business or whatever, and you heard some some comments uh, or you noticed some institutional, systemic, structural um, expressions of oppression, because a lot of times those just get kind of blown away and blown over. You have to have a cultural lens to be able to pick that up. But if you if you notice that, then what might you choose to do to come from your anti whatever ism is or multiple ones to to help those people understand? Wait a minute. Did you realize that you never really did ask the people that were serving here? Do you think that they might have something to say about their reality? Who knows more of their reality? So there we have that dynamic of oppression playing out there. Hmm. So that, and then another thing is education. Education, to be able to, another student said this, to be able to actually educate people who are struggling, and they might be people who have some of the same powerful advantage identities as this person, let's say. And so to be able to say, you know what, 
I, I really want you to know more about the reality of the other. I understand that you have this per- perception and for many reasons, because we've all absorbed those socially constructed stories about who people are um, and who's in, who's out, who's us, who's them. But um, I just want to see if I can just gently talk to you about it. You don't even necessarily have to agree, but I just want to put it out there. Um, and and maybe, maybe you might just reflect on it a little bit more. There's some people who are actually having... Um, in certain institutions, they have meetings. Uh, at University of Kansas, for example, I was surprised, but they actually had a meeting for um, people who identified as white, and they had a meeting on white fragility, Robin DiAngelo's book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, so those were white people who put that together, though. And so that's another way of finding these pockets of educating other people who didn't sit in the space or didn't sit in the class or the training that you took or not on this podcast, for example, um, and your other podcasts about trauma. Uh, so there's, there's, there's possibilities. There's also ways of doing it a little bit more macro um, in terms of certain legislation. I mean, cause again, we're talking systems here. So you can you can bring your voice into that, too, if there's certain legislation that is going to maintain a disparity against a certain population. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are talking about the high cost of of uh, prescription drugs. And what's that? What that is that doing to people who are older, who can't afford this and they're retired and so on? Well, there we go. Mm-hmm. There's an opportunity. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I could go on, but basically it's like really connecting to your core values of who are you in this life? Um, what does social justice really mean to you, if it means anything at all? And then not just holding that as a, as a um, cognitive piece, but if you really are invested in it and you're invested into social justice, it does require some degree of action. It doesn't have to be going out with a protest or anything. Sometimes people think, oh, well, I'm not going to protest. You don't have to do that. There's so many other ways. Yeah, yeah. It it actually reminds me of um, when I first started, the first live mindful self-compassion training I was at was with um, Chris Germer and Kristen Neff. And it was Kristen, I think, talking about this more um, active and active and receptive qualities of self-compassion that it isn't, which was helpful for me because I think I was thinking of self-compassion as uh, more passive, soft, soothing um, kind of uh, practice or skill where she really complexified that and said, no, there's actually sometimes where you are taking action, you are inserting yourself and it reminds me of that. And I feel like there's moments that I've seen. I would appreciate that example of when you said someone who said, who approaches someone and says, can I talk to you about this and expresses some curiosity? I mean, I've also been in spaces where, for example, white fragility that you just mentioned, I've been in spaces where white fragility really gets um, brought in a very, I'd say, more active way. At the most extreme, it could be dismissive and blaming. And then on another side, I've seen it brought where there's there's a curiosity, there's an assertion, there's a curiosity. Like, I wonder if, what the dynamics are playing out here. Can we talk about that? And anyway, so just not, as a helpful reminder of, of, I'm glad you said that about, right, it can be, it's not just a more passive, soothing um, quality. It can be quite fierce. Yes, exactly. And that's that's the... Kristen calls it, and Chris, the, the yang of self-compassion, the action base hmm. uh, of, of protecting and providing and motivating and acting. Um, and, and yeah, it is, it is just as important. And it is also a way of extending compassion to the world and compassion to yourself. It's not just the nurturing side, which is the yin of self-compassion, which is more about the relating to oneself in that comforting, soothing, validating manner. Yeah. It's really kind of bringing those two together. That's great. That's great. Well, where do you, I think my, maybe move towards um, closing here, but 
my question at this point would be, you know, any, anything else that you'd want us to know about um, your path, your practice? I know there's a lot we could touch on here, but also where do you, you know, where do you want to go? Where do you see this um, kind of the best case scenarios in this current historical moment around what we can uh, be practicing together around, whether it's mindful self-compassion or contemplative practice more generally, I always like to hear people get to <laughs> vision um, for all of us. So anywhere that you'd like to take us here? Well, from this point, David, I am really interested in extending what I'm doing already because I have to say that I really, I really love what I'm doing in terms of integrating much macro work with micro work, yeah. you know, as seeing people who are trauma survivors predominantly in my private practice, and then bringing in, obviously, the, the trauma lens uh, in many ways, but also bringing in that intersection of identity, uh, because sometimes some, some mental health providers forget that, uh, which is not unusual when it comes to diversity. Yeah. I say it, but it's true. It kind of gets in the back burner here, or it's an afterthought. Um, and, and it, it needs to be amplified because it's such a, such an important piece of people's, uh, experiences and who they are, mm-hmm. their sense of self. So I want to continue doing that. And I also want to continue the, the community work because I feel like one way that we can be more inclusive, especially when it comes to mindfulness programming is to make our program more accessible to those people who typically would never have access mm-hmm. to these practices. Um, and they don't even know about it. Many of them don't have never heard of mindfulness. So I want to continue that work because I've, I'm, I'm working right now in the community with some at-risk populations, veterans at the Kansas City VA, um, and with their diagnoses mm-hmm. with trauma, and then also those with spinal cord injuries, because I do have a heart and soul for that intersection of not just race, class, gender, but also ability. Yes, and how that, uh, how those identities intersect. That's so, so interesting in terms of even the levels and the layers of trauma they have experienced too. Yes. Um, so I want to continue doing that type of work, you know, working with, I, I mentioned to you, with a one-on-one with you about working with people who were ca- incarcerated. Uh, oh, wow, was that uh, an experience? I absolutely learned so much of, from their realities because I had to be really aware and present with myself in terms of, you know, who I am. Uh, what are my intersections of identity and what are theirs, but also the context. I'm not incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And so I have the privilege of not being that. But that reality right there, that was an invitation for me to hold that mm-hmm. and to do that when I'm, I'm talking with them. Mm-hmm. So I want to continue to do that work and do more, um, develop more classes and practices, meditations specifically for people of color too. Um, they hold many of us hold so much and we don't get, we don't get that opportunity to um, really be with that at all because most of the time it's like, because of the pathology that's been created around uh, people of color historically, we have to push back against that. And in families, it's like, you cannot be vulnerable because you have to show <laughs> yeah, yeah. your best self and um, you must always be strong. But then again, here we go, causing you know depression, more anxiety uh, when we don't have those safe places to practice and be with ourselves and know that be compassionate again, self-compassion. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm yeah, I'm grateful for your teaching and your work. And I'm excited to, um, you know, hear where you continue to be headed given all the different areas that you're going to be teaching and practicing. Are, is there ways that, um, 
people can get in touch with you or uh, places that you'll be you know, teaching over the next year in case anyone wanted to come and, and um, study with you? Yes. At, uh, if, if anyone's in the Midwest, um, I'm a co-founder and a teacher, mindfulness teacher with an organization, community organization. That's where I do a lot of my community work out of, as well as mindful self-compassion. And it's uh, Midwest Alliance for Mindfulness. And the website is, um, it is mindfulness-alliance.org. Perfect. Great. Well, thanks, Sydney, for being here and for all your work. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to keeping in touch. Well, same here, David. I really appreciate our conversation and I appreciate having the time to be able to talk about some of these issues around trauma and around equity work as well. Like I said, I feel like there's definitely an intersection between the two. Yeah, lots of overlap. Well, to be to be continued. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. Thanks for listening and thanks also to Sydney for joining us here. If you have any requests or ideas about people you'd like us to speak with, please let us know. You can write us at support at davidcherlevin.com. And thanks again for listening. Be well. Be well.